Life begins at 45. This was the headlines a few years ago of a news article in the United Kingdom that described what stage of life people claim to be the most content. Various questions were asked about their level of satisfaction that people had in things like relationships and finances. And the results from this poll began to circle around a new marketing term called the midlife riser theory. A theory that states that when men and women reach their 40s and 50s, life really begins. And I thought I'd share with you some interesting statistics to kind of back that conclusion up, but then I came across another poll that said that those who are in their 40s and 50s actually have the highest levels of depression and anxiety of any group in society. So, which is it? Does the midlife riser theory hold water, or does the dismal midlife crisis theory still hold true? Well, one woman in favor of the midlife riser theory once said this, quote, it's not about fading into gray. It's about moving into a new stage of life, post-children, and preparing to try something new. So if this woman's observation and conclusion were accurate, basically contentment will be founded upon our ability to just get to the next stage in life the next phase, you know, leave this dissatisfying stage in life and enter a new one, a fresh start, a clean slate, or to put it more simply, just try something new. So if I'm in high school, what will really give me contentment is getting to college. That's what's going to get me Contentment, you know, getting away from old mom and dad telling me what I got to do, living on my own, making new friends. This is what will bring me contentment. Or if I'm single, what will give me contentment? Well, it's, it's getting married. It's finding that special someone or that soulmate. Having that lifelong companion to lean on and start a family with. That's, that's what will bring me contentment. Or if I'm working in an entry-level position in my job, and then it's getting the job promotion, uh, the better office space, a little higher pay, gaining a little respect from my coworkers and peers. That's what will bring me contentment. Or if in my 50s or 60s, it's, it's reaching retirement. It's having less stress in the nine to five and more rest, going on vacations, living near the grandkids, getting to fulfill my lifelong bucket list. That's what will bring me contentment. Now, all of these things have their perks, don't they? I mean, some of them are the answers to prayer. Some of them the fruits of hard work. So what's the big deal? Well, we can have contentment and satisfaction in these things, But we can't put all our contentment in these things. Because all these things that I just mentioned are based off of circumstances. There are situations or conditions in the life that occur for various reasons and temporary seasons of life, but they're unpredictable. 
And to be quite honest with you, if you were to look yourself in the mirror and just look in the last five years of your life, you have been reminded time and time again that you're not ultimately in control of most, if not all, your circumstances. So, what about you? Right now, not five years from now, not 10 years from now, not 15 years from now, but at this present moment, are you content living within the circumstances that you find yourself in? If you are content, well, then my question is, what's causing you to be content? I mean, with so many people discontent, I want to know, what, what's your secret? And if you aren't content, well, for your homework this morning, fill in this blank. If only I had blank, then I would be content. What would you put in that blank? This morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And our primary focus will be on verses 10 to 23. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, it should be on page 571. This sermon will conclude our sermon series in Philippians. So if you missed a sermon or two, you can get on our podcast and look those up. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. This is God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In our passage this morning, we're going to hear from the heart of a man who is concluding a letter that he wrote to a church that he dearly loved. The author, the Apostle Paul, has been writing to the Philippians, a church that he founded, claiming that he's discovered the secret 
of facing any and every circumstance of life. If you're taking notes, here is my outline. Point number one, a secret worth learning. A secret worth learning. That's verses 10 to 13. Point number two, a partnership worth imitating. A partnership worth imitating. That's verses 14 to 18. And number three, a God worth trusting. A God worth trusting. Verses 19 to 23. Let's first begin by reading verse 10 to help us understand the context. The Apostle Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Uh, What we're reading right here, starting in verse 10, is the final encouragement and expression of gratitude that Paul writes to a church that was located in Philippi. As you may recall from previous sermons, Philippi was a prominent city located in Macedonia, located near modern-day Greece. Uh, Paul was an apostle. That means he was an authoritative messenger to represent King Jesus and to speak King Jesus' words. And he proclaimed the gospel. So when Paul and the apostles would enter into a new village, town, or city, they would proclaim the good news about Jesus. Sinners would be brought to life, and local churches were established. If you want to read about how Philippi, or the Philippian church, was begun, you can read Acts chapter 16 for some background on that. When Paul leaves Philippi as a result of persecution, he and his team begin work elsewhere. In other words, they get out of Dodge. They realize it's getting hot in the city. I need to go somewhere else where we can meet new people. And so what does Paul and Luke and Silas and his team do? Well, they pack up their bags. They go to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and many other places much further away. With the exception of a few interactions that may have occurred over a few years, Paul and this church had lost contact. So at the time Paul writes this letter, approximately 10 years have passed since this church was planted, and possibly several years have passed since they even heard or saw one another. Paul is now in prison in Rome, and he receives news about the church in Philippi by one of their own members. You remember his name? That's what you're going to name your next pet, Epaphroditus. Come on, guys. Epaphroditus. He's mentioned in chapters 2 and 4. And Epaphroditus is most likely just a well-known leader in the church. He might have been a deacon or an elder from chapter 1, verse 1. We're not really sure. But whatever role he took, the Philippian church affirmed him and sent him out to minister to Paul. And Paul said some very kind things about him. And you can read more about that in chapter 2. And then we can read a little bit more right now in chapter 4. And there's really two things that Epaphroditus does. And he does them quite well. Number one, he tells Paul about the ministry and how the people are doing. And then he also brings with him gifts. Kids, isn't Christmas an exciting time of year? Isn't it exciting when you see gifts under the tree? Epaphroditus was like Christmas to Paul. He was bringing gifts from the church to meet his need. So when we read in verse 10 that Paul rejoiced in the Lord greatly, Paul here is concluding his letter really in the same way he began this letter. 
Paul began this letter with joy, and he is concluding this letter with joy. Because Paul is exemplifying what is true of every Christian. When you love Jesus, Jesus gives you a love for other followers of Jesus. That's not something you need to manufacture or trick someone into doing. If they're truly a follower of Jesus, they will love other followers of Jesus. You know, Paul loved them so much, he boasted about them. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, do you recall that from last week? Look in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. And that shouldn't surprise us either, right? I mean, just like a parent is proud of their children when they grow up and begin to become the man or woman they raise them to be, Paul, too, is, is proud of them. He loves them. He's seeing them grow up spiritually in the Lord. But one of the things Paul does is not only reiterate his love for them, but he wants to remind them and to affirm them that, hey, listen, you didn't forget about me. Uh, by, by no stretch of means, though we haven't seen each other, I know you have been thinking about me. In fact, again, look what he says in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, that translation could also be at last. This is not him complaining. This is him showing gratitude. He says, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you just had no opportunity. You know, Paul doesn't share with us here specifically why they had lost contact, but I think we can put on our sanctified imagination. And it was probably some deficient communication, right? He didn't have Siri. Siri, where's the Philippians? You know, Epaphroditus getting on his beeper if we want to go back to the 80s and 90s. There were no white pages. There was no Facebook or Instagram. There was no iPhone stalkerish app that can tell people where you're at. He didn't know. But Paul wanted to know that he knew. They loved him. Paul then goes on to explain that this time of losing contact with them and not being able to receive their financial support did not in any way hinder God's work in Paul's life either. In fact, look with me in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So the first point in our outline is we need to discover something, a secret worth learning. What is Paul's secret? The first thing I want us to notice is Paul's understanding here of when he says he is of not being in need. I think when you first read that, Paul kind of comes off a little macho, a little self-sufficient. He's a spiritual superhero. He doesn't need anybody's help. But I don't think we need to read this as if Paul was trying to show that he didn't need anyone's help. Paul didn't deny that he had real needs. He had real needs just like you and I. He needed food. He needed shelter. He needed clothing, just like the rest of us. In fact, in verse 12, he says he had faced times of hunger and need. 
But I think what Paul is doing here is wanting to reassure the Philippians that while he is deeply grateful for their gifts, somebody had already beat them to the punch. God had already met Paul's greatest need. God had been sustaining the Apostle Paul in every season of hardship that he faced. But how did he do it? Well, Paul says right there in verse 11, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Contentment. You know, some of us, when we are maybe cornered by someone that's just going to tell us like it is and see right through the veneer, we can get a little uncomfortable, can't we? When we hear this word of contentment. I don't know if if you're like me, but I get convicted when I hear about contentment because I can always find something to complain about. I can always find something to get me all worked up and find discontentment in. Maybe even this week, you have found yourself more restless than usual. The news ads and the media all about the presidential election have left you unsettled to your core. The peace that we so celebrated last week in Philippians 4, verses 1 to 9, seems so out of reach. Or maybe you've been scanning social media on Facebook and Instagram and other apps, and you are envious of things or relationships that other people have, that for whatever reason you don't. The seemingly happy marriage that your friends have, you jealously long for. The fit physical physique that your coworkers have makes you feel insecure and defeated by your lack of a physique. The brand new car your brother or sister are driving leaves you miserable as you're driving your clunker down Rogers. The church down the street has tons of things for kids. Uh, while the church that I'm in doesn't really have a whole lot for kids. All these things and many others, when comparing our lives to others and what God has given them, can leave you and I feeling discontent. So what is contentment? Well, the word Paul uses here, it literally means self-sufficient, having enough or could be more easily understood as satisfied. So, Paul is in essence saying, no matter what circumstance of life I have found myself in, I have learned how to be content. I'm satisfied. I already have what I most need. But that sounds a little strange, doesn't it? Paul, you're you're self-sufficient? I mean, aren't you the grace guy in the Bible? Well, Paul sounds somewhat arrogant if you just stop there. It seems like Paul's kind of his, his, he marches to his own drumbeat. He pulls himself up by his own bootstraps. You know, what's really interesting in Paul's day, uh, there were this Greek philosopher set called the Stoics that actually taught with the mindset that it was the mark of a wise man or a wise woman, to need no one and be totally independent from others in their life. And so when you're reading this, the first century hearers could have been thinking, well, Paul, are you 
buying into this stoic belief? Are you a self-made man that needs no one's help? Well, thankfully, Paul, again, explains to us the source of his contentment. Look at verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul tells us that this contentment did in fact come from within him, but it did not originate or remain because of him. It's actually quite the opposite. His contentment, his self-sufficiency was entirely due to the sufficiency of another. And who was that another? He says, through him who strengthens me. It was the Lord himself who strengthened Paul. It was the Lord himself that gave him contentment. You know, much greater than an FCA shirt that you can quote at a basketball game, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let me shotgun that misquote. Paul is saying this isn't about a high school basketball game. This is about trusting in Christ and being energized in him in the midst of unpleasant circumstances. You you see, Paul's contentment was a grace. It was a gift that God gave him. And this contentment is uniquely different than any other sense of contentment or peace of mind that the world can offer us. In fact, Paul defines this kind of contentment so unique that he calls it a secret. In a secret that he had learned. Look again back at verse 12. He writes, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul, again, borrows a term that was used in mystical religions that required some form of initiation to be accepted into the group, much like a fraternity or a sorority in college. I remember when Julie and I got married, as you are getting to know one another as husband and wife, we love this idea of one flesh, no secrets, right? Well, as I discovered, she was once part of a sorority, I said, well, tell me what it was like. And she said, oh, yeah, we did this and that, but we also had these secret handshakes. I said, oh, really? Can you show me? I'm not lying to you. In the living room, in our apartment, she goes, I I can't. Sweetheart, you see this ring? Those vows recently? You can tell me your sorority handshake secret. I mean, who am I going to tell? She, I, just, I just can't. Eventually she did tell me. So anyway, not that day, but maybe a few weeks or months later. There was a secret. There was something that only a chosen few knew to be included in the group. And here Paul says this secret, this initiation rite, this secret handshake was something that not any man or woman taught Paul. The secret handshake, the secret of the Christian life was something only God could give him. So if you're taking notes, here's the main idea of the sermon. What is the secret that Paul's alluding to? It is this, knowing Jesus and being loved by him 
gives you the contentment you need for every circumstance God calls you to face. Knowing Jesus and being loved by him gives you the contentment you need for every circumstance God calls you to face. I think there's two things we need to learn about the secret of contentment that every Christian needs to download from the Word of God into your heart. Subpoint number one, contentment is God's will for every Christian. Contentment is God's will for every Christian. Several times in the New Testament, Christians are called to live a life of contentment. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The writer of Hebrews says in the final chapter, chapter 13, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When Paul would write to the church of Corinth in the second letter that we have in the canon of the New Testament, Paul was not only facing financial trials, but he was also facing friendship and spiritual and health trials all at once. But at the conclusion of a letter where he defends his ministry, he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, but he, that is, the Lord, said, my grace is sufficient. There's that word again, enoughness, sufficiency, contentment for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Brothers and sisters, let me just say off script here. If you have never known what it means to experience the contentment Paul is describing, it is because you are too strong. You depend too much on you. You see, it's the total paradox in the Christian life. We are taught from the time we are children, do your best, go get it, live your best life now, fulfill your dreams. And not to take anything away from dreams or goals, but the Christian life flips the whole thing upside down. Follow Jesus and be used of Jesus even if none of your goals get accomplished. Follow Jesus if you lose three-fourths of your friends in the process. Follow Jesus if that means cutting your livelihood in half to be at a good local church. Following Jesus is costly, but following Jesus is the recipe for the contentment your heart yearns for. See, it's in weakness, it's in brokenness, it's in dependence where we can rightly receive this gift. The second thing we learn about the secret of contentment is subpoint number two contentment is learned during times of loss. And gain. Contentment is learned during times of loss and gain. Again, look in verse 11 of chapter 4 in Philippians. 
He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, describing times of loss and scarcity. And I know how to abound, describing times of gain and prospering. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Listen, Paul didn't experience contentment by taking the perfect Sunday school class or buying the perfect book at Lifeway or downloading the best podcast you can find. Though all those things are helpful, all those things are good for us, Paul says he learned contentment by experience. You see, Christianity, unlike the dead religions of the world, is not a mindless exercise or a heartless exercise. It is an encounter with the living God. Paul experienced contentment by walking with his God. Brothers and sisters, we have lost that kind of language in our testimonies. What does it say of Enoch? Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. In the New Testament, we are called to walk as Jesus walked. Brothers and sisters, Paul was nothing different than you and I. He woke up on Monday with the same temptation to be discontent of all the reasons he could complain. And yet Paul said, listen, it wasn't in times of comfort and ease only that I learned contentment, but it was in times where I had to trust God and there ain't nothing else to hold on to. Paul learned contentment, brothers and sisters, even when his good plans did not work out as he originally had hoped. Have you ever had your plans change? I mean, 2020, if there is any year in our generation that will go down as the year where plans changed, it would be this one. All of us have had to learn what it means to redirect or wait or maybe throw an original plan in the trash. Maybe you had a job in the bag. The application process took sway and then you thought, well, I've got this. The interview was easy. The employer was so kind. They promised they would email back and then you found out suddenly that the job was offered to someone else. Maybe a close friend or family member who you thought you would live near, maybe for the rest of your life, suddenly tells you that God has a different plan for them, that they're moving much farther away. Or have you ever had to wait Wait and wait for God to give you something you wanted? Have you been praying? It seems like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling, sometimes not even getting off the floor. Have you ever just stopped and thought for a moment that in seasons of waiting, God is teaching you how to be content. I like how Paul Maxwell describes God's purposes for us in waiting. 
He says waiting is when God turns up the emotional volume knob to reveal what's in the heart. Remember the context of this letter. It's quite possible it had been nearly five years since Paul had heard or seen this church. And it was a church that had been supporting Paul financially for a season better than the other churches had. And it was during this extended season of waiting that our Lord taught our dear brother, the Apostle Paul, how to be content. So how does God teach us contentment through waiting? Imagine my fist. Open is a contented heart. Closed is a discontented heart. This comes from the journal of my own life and through counseling and through scripture. Five common bad fruits of discontentment that God reveals to us in seasons of waiting. Number one, idolatry. Idolatry. It's when we want something too much. John Calvin said our hearts are like idol factories. The problem isn't the desire itself, but that we desire it too much. Number two, worry. Worry. It's not trusting God's provision for each day. It's when there is an excessive preoccupation with the future before the future gets here. But how did our Lord teach us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11. Number three, jealously or coveting. I call it when we window shop other people's lives. It's when we're overly concerned with God's gifts to others instead of being thankful for what he's already given us. Number four, impatience. Impatience. It's trying to force God's timing prematurely. We might even try to find ourselves manipulating people to get our way. But I've often seen that God delays an answer to our prayers simply to remind us whose timetable we are on. And then number five, unbelief. Unbelief. We've just stopped believing. I've been told, even in the hour of pain by dear brothers and sisters, don't pray for me. It won't matter. I understand that pain. I understand that Mark 9 paradigm. I believe and help my unbelief. But brothers and sisters, these five things in seasons of waiting, the Lord is kind and the Lord is gracious. And he will pry these fingers back and he will take as long as he needs to do it. Do you know why? As painful as this is going to be, he wants you and I to come to him in prayer with hands open, hearts content in him, saying, Father, I delight in you. I delight in you. And you tell me in the Psalms, if I delight in you, you will give me the desires of my heart. But brothers and sisters, this delight in God says this, if I don't get this that I want, but still get God, give me God every time. Do you pray like that? God, I want this, I want that, but Lord, if you don't give me these things, give me more of you. That 
is the heart of a man or woman, boy or girl, experiencing contentment in their God. Beloved, it's, maybe you're there this morning, but I want to tell you from the authority of God's word, you're waiting on God's not in vain. David says in the Psalm, Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You see, when we wait on God in prayer, we learn to delight in God, regardless if he changes the circumstances we don't like. Let me say that again. When we wait on God in prayer, we learn how to delight in who God is, regardless if he changes anything around us. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you on the authority of God's word, that is the safest place that you and I could ever be. God changed my heart not towards my circumstances as much as my heart towards you. Because if you're delighting in God, come what may. Come what may. Well, it seems in our passage that Paul certainly is someone worthy to imitate, realizing that contentment is not just a push the button, the drink comes down to the soda machine, but it is a learning experience. But Paul also shows us a beautiful example of a partnership to imitate, which is number two, a partnership worth imitating. Who did Paul partner with in ministry? Look again with me in verses 14 to 18. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Though Paul made it clear to them that God had been teaching him contentment, uh, he wasn't in any way dismissing the blessings from God through the Philippian church. Again, Paul was filled with gratitude of their love for him. He replied to their email. He replied to their text. He sent them a letter back. In verse 14, did you notice? He said it was kind of you. It was an honorable, it was a beautiful thing that the Philippian church would share in Paul's trouble. Brothers and sisters, the Philippian church is a wonderful model for other churches to imitate when it comes to caring for gospel workers. I want you to notice two things about the Philippian church. First, they were a faithful church. They were a faithful church. Look at verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Well, keep in mind, Paul's reflecting back over a decade now from the time Paul planted this church. And he says that it was the Philippian church that faithfully responded to God's work in their life by entering into a gospel partnership with Paul. Paul defines this partnership as one of giving and receiving. So what exactly is Paul talking about? 
Well, he's talking about the pattern that's laid out for us in Scripture and how churches should care for faithful gospel workers. Servant leaders who are gifts to God's church to build them up spiritually are to be cared for by the church financially. Servant leaders who are gifts to God's church to build them up spiritually are to be cared for by the church financially. And they're just living out what Paul said elsewhere in Galatians 6, verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Or as Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And notice that Paul says it was the Philippian church exclusively who cared for him in a season of time. He says, did you notice that phrase? Except you only. Now, we're not really sure why it was just the Philippian church. There were other Christians that loved Paul. It's quite possible that the Corinthian church were buying into a bunch of sham and lying teachers, and so they were bought a false message that Paul was a crook, and so they stopped paying him. Or it could just simply be that churches were fairly poor and they could only pay for so much. But regardless of whatever reason it was, the Philippian church did not run away from, they did not shy away from the opportunity and privilege of supporting Paul's work. Instead, they willfully and joyfully had all hands in. Subpoint number two, they were a generous church. They were a generous church. Look at verses 16 to 18 again. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, Paul mentions that when he was in Thessalonica, which would have been about 100 miles away, the Philippian church had cared for Paul's needs. Did you notice this next phrase? Once and again. In other words, this wasn't just a one-time love offering, as gracious those things are. But the Philippian church modeled what it means to be a persistent and sacrificial giving church. Not one that did it under compulsion, but they did it willingly and with the right motivation. So what motivated the Philippians to give like that? What motivated the Philippians to have all hands on deck for as long as God would allow them? Well, look again at verse 17, how Paul models for us what our giving motives should be about. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Did you catch that? This verse is almost never mentioned in any budget discussion at a church, and it is your missions ministry philosophy. Paul's motive in asking for money is 100% about the eternal benefit of the givers and not merely his need. He knows that God will supply the need no matter what happens, but he wants the Philippians to be the conduit that gets the privilege of doing it. In other words, Paul was more concerned about these believers' spiritual growth and their eternal reward 
than his own comfort and needs. Wow. That's what Paul's saying. I don't seek your money. I seek what will bless you most eternally. CCBC, I want to encourage you in your faithfulness through your generous giving, even in just the last five and a half months. Without passing around an offering plate one time, without talking about money almost every week since we first met back in May in my home, you have given generously to the ministry of this local congregation. Next Sunday night, during our members' meeting, you'll get to hear again our current giving records, and we'll get to vote on the 2021 church budget. So in light of that, I want to encourage each one of us to take time this week and read back over the line items on that budget and allow it to fuel your prayers. If you're in a small group that prays together, pray for the things that we are going to vote upon in our ministry next year. Look over those items that speak about the present and future opportunities for church staff, for missions giving, for books and other discipling resources, and even over the vision of purchasing land. Bring these items to the Lord in prayer. Ask God to advance his gospel and extend his kingdom through CCBC way beyond our own feeble imagination or even our best plans. Beloved, the Lord is pouring out his generosity and kindness to us. And he's been doing that through the prayers of saints like you, through the preaching of his word, through the teaching and Bible study, and through the financial provision of sacrificial givers like you. That's something to celebrate. If you are lacking contentment this morning, just remember, five months ago, this didn't exist. Three months ago, this didn't exist. Nine weeks ago, this didn't exist. Brothers and sisters, when you see the budget next week, when you look around and see and hear about the fruit God is bearing in people's lives, that's something to have contentment about. That is something to be excited about entering into next year. But I want to challenge you, as I have been challenged myself this week, what is your motivation? What is my motivation for giving in the first place? Is it simply to check a box of doing what I've always done as a churchgoer? Or do we have a greater goal in mind? Jim Elliott, the missionary martyred in Ecuador by the Alca Indians in the 1950s, once said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Mr. Elliott is simply echoing the words of our Lord, isn't he? Matthew 6, starting in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Have you ever noticed that the most generous people are usually the most content people? I mean, did not Jesus tell us in Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give 
than receive? The more we give away for gospel good, the more we realize it was all God's to begin with. Let me say that again. The more you and I give away for gospel good, the more we realize it was all God's to begin with. Brothers and sisters, may that be our attitude when we are thinking about what to give towards gospel work. Paul then expresses his gratitude by letting them know that he's well taken care of. He's got more bags and more books and every bit of goodies. Grandma Susie in the Philippian church made sure the Debbie cakes were in. Uncle Hank made sure he had plenty of shirts. It says in verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And he calls their gifts a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Brothers and sisters, giving a cold cup of water to a dear believer in need is pleasing to God. Look at your giving. Look at, I should look at my giving as an act of worship that radiates and pleases the Lord. And never forget, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need influential or powerful people in the world to do his work. You see, the kingdom of God is different than the kingdoms of men. God delights in using weak and prayerful people that believe in a great and powerful God. It's the total opposite of what we are pumped into our heads in society. You know, after years of waiting, Spurgeon saw much fruit in his ministry, so much that people had to get tickets just to get a seat, and he was not a multi-service pastor. Think about that for a minute. 6,000 people wanted to hear the preaching of God's word. God was pouring out revival. They needed a new building because one burned down. After prayer, after not soliciting their needs to everyone around them, people from different countries heard about the work going on in London, and they said, I'm in. I want to support that ministry. And what happened after a period of time? They were able to build the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and God greatly used a ministry. Spurgeon once said this in front of his church at the opening of the tabernacle, only give us a minister preaching Christ and a people who will serve their God and feel it to be their pleasure to devote themselves and their substance to his cause, and nothing is impossible. As Paul concludes his letter, like a good pastor, he reminds them of who is ultimately worthy to be trusted and who alone is worthy to be praised, which leads to our final point, point number three, a God worth trusting. Paul now takes the focus off himself from verses 10 to 13, He takes the focus off the Philippian church, verses 14 to 18, and now he puts the focus where it always belongs, puts his focus on God. Look at me at verses 19 and 20. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul directs the focus of the Philippian church solely now on the character and generosity of God. Paul describes our God, did you catch that? As one who will supply every need of theirs. 
Here, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to know that their giving to meet his need will be matched and superseded by God who will meet their needs. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? What does the Bible say? You know this from your earliest years in Sunday school. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the wealthiest being in all the universe. He's no man's debtor. He needs no credit card. He needs no loans. He owns everything. You and I can never outgive God, and God can certainly meet any need we have in order to do his work. But I also want you to know that Paul is not primarily speaking about financial needs. Some gospel so-called prosperity preachers will take these verses and rip them out of context. Give to my ministry, you get a hundredfold back. Baloney. That is not what verse 19 is teaching. God certainly can multiply your wealth. But if you read 2 Corinthians 9, it's only that you become more generous, not become more self-indulgent, Benny Hind. Anyway, God promises to meet our needs, but those needs can be far and beyond just finances. I mean, just think about it for a minute. The entire letter of Philippians is not about their possessions or finances. It was about their spiritual growth. In chapter 1, he prayed for their love to increase, as well as their knowledge and discernment to increase. In chapter 2, he wanted to see them pursue unity with one another, humility towards one another, and to live distinct lives among unbelievers. In fact, look in verses 21 and 22 in chapter 4 here, towards the end. He reverberates the love that believers have towards one another by Christians kindly greeting one another. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Chapter 3 then warns them of false teaching and the need to persevere in sanctification. And then in chapter 4, as we looked at last week, Paul cared about their prayer life and he cared about their thought life. If you're here today and you would not consider yourself to be a Christian I think a question I want to leave you with today is this. What are you looking for to bring you contentment? Is it a better job? A new spouse? Better behaved children or grandchildren? Good health? Let me just be crystal clear with you this morning. If you are pursuing any of these things in and of themselves, your pursuit for contentment will be in vain because you're only going to find the contentment we have spoken about this morning, this secret handshake of being satisfied by knowing Jesus Christ. That's what we looked at a few weeks ago in Philippians 3. Paul found that contentment once and for all. In Philippians 3, verse 7, he said, uh, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, what you and I most need is not a one-up in our job or a better living 
situation. What we most need is to be reconciled to our God. See, our sin is what disrupts any contentment we have with God. In fact, our sin even redefines where we try to find contentment, and it leaves us wanting. You see, if you were to die right now in your sin, you would spend a misery eternally separated from God and under his wrath forever. And yet God has sent his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus lived a life fully content in his heavenly father. His delight was to do the will of his father. Quite literally, he called doing his father's will the food that others did not know about. Jesus' contentment in his heavenly father eventually led him to the cross for the benefit of us and the glory of his father. He died on the cross as a substitute for our sin, and God raised him from the dead three days later. And the Bible tells us if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ by faith, you can know God today. You can begin to experience the secret of being content by following Jesus Christ. Well, at the very conclusion here in verse 20, Paul basically just wraps it up with a bow. He says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Julie and I don't watch TV a lot, but when we do, there's only four basic things we flip through. Sports channel, the weather channel, HGTV, and anything with a crime scene. We probably need to go see a counselor for why, but the last one I've kind of thought about through time, and I think it's just because we like the suspense, right, sweetie? Yeah. We like the suspense. We like to guess who's the culprit, who's the victim, who's innocent, who's guilty, you know? Is it the maid? You know, is it the grass keeper? Is it the long, estranged brother? I don't know. But as we're watching the show, we are fascinated by the detectives showing every measure possible to see if they can find the fingerprints. Well, it seems right here in verse 20 that the Apostle Paul has been writing for four chapters and he ties it up with a bow and he says, listen, look at God's fingerprints on your ministry. Look at God's fingerprints and what's going on in our life together. It's almost as if Paul stopped to reflect and goes, Christians in Philippi, remember 10 years ago, this didn't exist. And look what God has done in the last 10 years. So in Acts 16, we know that Paul didn't have plans to go to Philippi. But God redirected his path through a vision. And then the first church was planted in modern-day Europe. In Philippians 1, Paul was filled with joy every time this church crossed his mind because of the good work God had begun in them. So Paul reflected back over those years of ministry together when they would give to his ministry, when they would write to him and come and see him. Paul then also reflected back on those years of waiting where they had lost contact. And then in God's perfect timing, in God's perfect way, like God always does, the Philippian church was able to bless Paul once again through the gifts, through Epaphroditus. Brothers and sisters, do you lack contentment in Christ this morning? Then look back. Look back on the fingerprints of God's faithfulness in your life. Look back how you came to know Christ. Look back at how God placed believers in your life to care for you 
when you most needed it. Look back at how God has provided faithful pastors for you to teach you the word. Look back at how God's given you resources when you needed them. Look back at how God withheld certain things, took away certain things that he would draw you closer to him. And look back at how God has preserved your faith in him all the way even to this morning. Beloved, don't just look back. If you look back too long, you'll miss what God has right in front of you. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan classic called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, once said this, Christians see heaven before them, and that contents them. When sailors see the haven before them, Though they were mightily troubled before they could see the land, yet when they come near the shore can see a certain landmark, that contents them greatly. A godly man in the midst of the waves and storms that he meets with can see the glory of heaven before him and so contents himself. One drop of the sweetness of heaven is enough to take away all the sourness and bitterness of all the afflictions in the world. A carnal heart has no contentment but from that what he sees before him in this world. But a godly heart has contentment from what he sees laid up for him in the highest heavens. So what are you looking for to bring you contentment? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have now concluded a letter written by Paul to the Philippian church, but for your church throughout all generations. Lord, I pray that you would teach each one of us that secret of being content, that it's in times of scarcity and weakness that we find sufficiency in your grace. Lord, I pray that we at CCBC would look at this model partnership between Paul and and the Philippians, that we would have a generous, persistent, eternal reward mindset when it comes to giving. And Father, whatever happens in this ministry, whether you prosper it like Spurgeon, or you prosper it very little in this life, I pray that we would give you the glory that is due your name for all the fingerprints that we notice of your hand in our life. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.